I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'm at the annual meeting of the British Society of Enteral and Parenteral Nutrition in Belfast, and I'm going to be talking to Ashley Bond, who's the author of a review in the journal this month, Diagnosis and Management of Catheter-Related Bloodstream Infections in Patients on Home Parental Nutrition. So an important article, an important article for people to read, think about and implement in their clinical practice. Ashley, thank you very much for agreeing to do this podcast. And um, can I just ask you to give us some background to this paper? You know, what, why is this important? Yes, so catheter-related infection in the context of intestinal failure is a leading cause of mortality in patients with intestinal failure, and it also carries a significant morbidity. So these patients often have prolonged hospital stays or recurrent admissions once they go home. It's also a significant cause of loss of venous access, which in itself leads to mortality and also leads to an intestinal transplant. Uh, and ultimately, it's a modifiable risk factor. So there's things that we can do as a group and as in individual units to try and negate this risk and reduce this risk. And therefore, it's something that we can do to make things better for patients. So in, in your article, you talk about you should have less than one per thousand catheter days of infection. That, that sounds pretty impressive to me. So do you think that's realistic and achievable? So I think if you look across the, the literature, there's a number of intestinal failure units around the world and in the UK that are reporting those. What you have to be careful of, though, is if you look across the general catheter-related infection literature, there's a big difference in where those are reported from. So they may be type 2 patients, they might be type 3 patients, or actually they might be surgical patients in the general setting or burns unit or in, or intensive care unit and clearly there's a huge difference there and so you have to be slightly careful when you're comparing those but definitely as a key quality indicator from ESPEN you know dedicated intestinal failure units should be striving for that and some people and discussions about it have discussed it even more so of being almost like a never event something you should really try and have especially in the so, type I mean, two you setting. and I, we both work in intestinal failure units. Mine's a pediatric one, yours is an adult one, and this is what we should aspire to. So, what's the pathophysiology? I don't mean in a complicated way, but what are we really thinking about mechanistically when we get a central line infection? So, we're thinking about where the pathogen gets into the line essentially. So, so the pathogen enters a line typically either at the hub. So where the connection and disconnection takes place, or the, the tunnel, where if it's a tunnel line, the actual entry point to the skin. Um, and obviously then the line becomes infected, and then that will then transmit into the blood when there's infosate passed through the line. So it's actually in the line. Yeah. Yeah. So what sort of line is best? Because, I mean, in, in preterm infants, it tends to be what you can get in. But, yep. you know, if you're doing it electively and someone's going home on parental nutrition... What sort of line should they have, ideally? So when they go home, if they're becoming a type 3 patient, and that's clear, or when they do go home, then a single lumen tunneled line is the best. And, and remind us, type 3 means that means at that home, on parental, home nutrition, on parental nutrition with yeah. chronic intestinal failure. Yes. 
So there might be a scenario, for example, if you have a new type 2 patient where you just alluded to it, you've got to get some kind of access. And actually a pick line in that instance would be you know, reasonable because you have to get access. But once it's becoming clear that it's going to be needed longer term, then a tunneled single lumen device is the best. That will reduce the risk of infection, reduce the risk of displacement, but also means that the patients can self-care, which is really important when they do go home. So there are lots of rules about handling the line, do you think? I mean, this is one of those things that we've got a nice standardized protocol to say, this is what you should and shouldn't do with the line. So probably not that long ago, if you went around the country, there'd be very different practices. Ultimately, everyone's trying to achieve the same thing, but the practices wouldn't necessarily be uniform. So BIFA have recently released some guidance and tried to essentially create a nationally accepted protocol so that everyone is doing the same thing in a standardised approach. And they introduce this concept of key parts that shouldn't be touched during the line. So that's one of the fundamentals of that, the BIFA guidance. And, that includes... and that's British Intestinal Failure Association. Mm-hmm. And that guidance is available on their website. On their website, yeah. And I, ultimately the idea would be that across all IFUs that this, the care is the same, the standard protocols. But also these patients often live far away from the centre. And so actually they may then need to present to their other non-intestinal failure centre trust, which might be down the road from where they live. And the care should be the same there as well. So it yeah, should be a national Yeah, of course, that's right, isn't it? We can sit in our centre, but most of our patients will access their urgent care in part of the network. So, I mean, the commonest thing I get asked is, can you take blood from the line? So the, answer, the short answer to that is no. In the, if it's for routine bloods, if people are thinking, okay, well, I've got access, I might as well use it, that will increase the risk of infection, it will increase the risk of thrombosis, and ultimately that increases the risk of line loss. So if, it, if, the, if, the, if you're taking cultures, for example, obviously then you're culturing the line, but if you're doing routine bloods or giving blood products, then ideally not. Yeah, I mean, pragmatically it's not always possible, yeah. but ideally not. And that's what I always say. So I've, What about these line locks? Because I can remember before line locks, but now line locks are quite common. So what's your indication in home parental nutrition patients for giving a line lock? So there aren't any defined absolute guidance, but typically where it has the biggest impact is probably in centres that have got above average line infection rates or in individual patients who have above average. So the ones that have multiple within 12 months um, who will, you know, they can benefit from that. And there's lots of evidence to show that in those centres it can bring down the rate. But ultimately it shouldn't ever um, negate protocolised line care, so strict protocol. And so care. first choice? Uh, Toralidine would be yeah. the first. And second choice? Um, so there probably aren't that, from from my experience, that, many others that are recommended. So there are other things like ethanol, for example, yeah. but Espen don't recommend that because it increases risk of thrombosis and also it can degrade the line. And so, actually, you know, if you've got a tiny infant, interestingly enough, the systemic absorption is quite high. Okay. So because obviously in a tiny baby, you can't always withdraw the lock once you've um, restarted the parental nutrition. So what about infections? When should you suspect them? 
I mean, do you have to have a temperature or what would make you suspect a line infection? Because that's a, a decision you want someone to make. They want them to culture the line, don't you, if they suspect a line infection? So the classic would be being unwell with pyrexia whilst the line is being used or accessed. That would be the classic way that that would present. But there's lots of evidence to show that patients with long-term lines in the context of necessity present very atypically. And that might be without fever, it may be with normal inflammatory markers, and it may just be with evidence of liver dysfunction, so being jaundiced, or just being non-specifically unwell, or failing to thrive. Um, and so you should have a pretty low threshold to suspect um, catheter-related infection, and it isn't just in the context of pyrexia. And peripheral and central cultures, that seems to be something you push quite strongly in your paper. Is that what you think should always be done? Yeah, I think you have to take paired cultures. So at the same time, essentially, as or as close to within 15 minutes of each other. And importantly, also to take the same amount of blood and inoculate at least five millilitres in each, uh, from each set. And that's really important for two reasons. It will allow them to perform the time to positivity from, from that analysis. Um, but it also means that you're not either over or under calling your line infection because if you overcall it you'll be at risk of removing too many lines or performing too many salvages or etc um, and if you're obviously undercalling it then you're exposing the patients to prolonged sepsis or even risk of dying essentially so is the reason you do both because you want it to, the culture to be positive in both or positive ones so how do you interpret those results so you can assess them either qualitatively or quantitatively um, quantitatively is using pore plates and counting the pores but there aren't very many centres that have access to pore plates um, and so most centres would use time to positivity and what you want there is if you're looking to define a line infection you want the line cultures to be positive two hours before the peripheral cultures. Okay now that's very helpful and that because often I get asked the question do we really need to do both and that's a good reason to do both. So what about treatment? So treatment should be through the line, yeah? So you should, at the earliest opportunity, if you suspect or you have confirmation that a line infection is probably locked, we've locked the line. Yeah. And whether you give the antibiotics through the line or through another route, typically it will be intravenous, will depend on the clinical picture. So you can, for example, give the antibiotics through the line, but it may depend upon the antibiotic that's indicated by the sensitivities, and it may depend upon um, the lock agent that you need to use. So you may not necessarily always give them through the line. So you'd take microbiological advice and... Yeah, and then they would be able to advise you about the duration of the antibiotics and the agents, but typically you want to provide some initial gram-negative and gram-positive cover. So vancomycin line locks, for example, would be a widely used... In conjunction with what systematic systemic? Well, pain? then then you may be guided by um, the, the the sensitivities. Okay, and get. in the paper there is quite a lot of specifics about different microbia. I mean, do you continue the parenteral nutrition, or is that again the same? It depends how well they are, the clinical need, the assessment of the patient. Yeah, so it will probably depend exactly on the things you just said. So if the things you probably wouldn't put through the line is is calorie containing. PN, you might put fluids or electrolytes through there. If you can avoid using it, 
in the first 72 hours, then that would be the preference. Um, and then you may need to use a sort of low osmolality peripheral type PN to support the patient if you're salvaging the line. And it's not automatic to remove the line, is it? I know that sometimes I imagine in a non-specialist centre, people might push to remove the line. But, you know, what's your criteria for removing the line so acutely? I, so I think that um, there is a there is a often been a, a concept of just removing the line straight away. But actually, I think we should look for reasons to remove the line rather than not to remove the line. So it should be the default position to try and salvage. And then if the other parameters are there, they're the things that should drive removal. So they would be overwhelming sepsis or septic shock, a septic shower, um, certain pathogens, so things like pseudomonas, um, fungus. Some literature will suggest staph aureus, but there is also some literature to suggest that that's salvageable. Um, and ongoing bacteremia despite therapy um, would be another one. And also metastatic sepsis, so pulmonary emboli, endocarditis would be reasons to remove it. But in the absence of any of those features, then the default position should be to try and salvage the line. And there is some criteria set, isn't it, for what you, you know, there's a, an agreement that if you've salvaged a line, then it means that the repeat cultures are negative and you've had no recurrence of the infection. And in your experience, do you often achieve line salvage? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I've published a few papers related to salvage. Um, and the percentages are high, 80% plus, and even higher depending upon the pathogen that's involved. So coagulase negative staph aureus is probably the most salvageable um, in the studies that I've performed, and they can be in excess of 90%, and that can actually be successfully salvaged with a 10-day protocol instead of a 14-day protocol. So again, the argument to um, it prolongs admissions or prolongs stay is negated by that. So that's important. That seems to me quite an important thing. So if you've got somebody with recurrent infections, you might give Toralock. Um, you might do other things, might you? Retrain them? What other sort yeah. of strategies? So one, you don't want somebody to mess up your data, do you? No. <laughs> so the first thing is always to check what the patient's doing. So if the patient's self-caring, it would be to reassess them. Um, and the nursing staff often are very astute to that. And sometimes it's a bit like when you pass your driving test, you're very good when you, on the day you pass, you do everything correct. But then these little errors creep in and um, patients will be in their home environment. And so it's much easier to make a mistake. So that's the first thing. Ultimately, though, if you feel that all those things are correct or you can't identify a specific issue, actually transferring patients to nurse-led care can be a strategy to um, reduce risk of infection. And just to get a period of assessing what's going on, I yeah. guess. Yeah. No, no, that's interesting. So it needs sorted out across a network, doesn't it? And the patients need to know what the plan is because they're going to present to centres that don't necessarily know them. So do your patients have a bit of paper or some record of what's going on with them? Do you think that would help? No, they, I, often they don't. They might have clinic letters, which might have summaries in, but something like a patient passport would probably be extremely useful. I think it, it would be vital, really, particularly as the way that intestinal failure services are, are set up in the UK. Um, patients are going to present to hospitals that do not have experience of dealing with those patients. 
and so they may present there with their line infection as their first port of call because that's always going to be the advice given to patients is go to your nearest point of safety essentially and that might be many miles away from the intestinal failure unit so if there is clear defined much like the BIFA guidance on care protocols but care protocols for line infections of how to pair, do properly paired cultures how to lock the line what to initially use how to and then contacting the intestinal failure unit to, to have the ongoing management I think is needs definite um, planning for the future yeah I mean it's interesting you know you could you could just say well give them a copy of your article and some more specific information because of course if the patients have the information and people are prepared to listen to it then the care is likely to be better there's been an interesting run through this um, excellent review which is available online to download um, any final thoughts I think the main things from the article are to suspect line infection even when it's atypical to always do pair cultures and do it properly in terms of the right amount of blood to be inoculated and make sure that your microbiology department is on board with reporting time positivity because it's really important and to think about salvaging the line unless there is a clear indication not to salvage the line. That's very helpful. Um, Ashley, thank you very much. This has been a useful discussion about the article and I would suggest that um, anyone who's listening to the podcast downloads it and works through it in a bit more detail. Um, I'm Mark Beattie, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.